once again, bad timing, bad planning. <laughs> You'd think I'd be smarter at this point, but I'm not. Um, Chapel Hill, will you stand with me and let's pray for the Mashburns and for the Wolof people. Father, we praise you this morning for the reality that there are people all over this planet that have never heard of your son, Jesus Christ, and you have not forgotten them. We praise you that your love reaches to every corner of this world. And we pray this morning that your kingdom would expand, that your, your family would grow. Father, thank you for each life among the Wolof people. And we know, we know from a long history with them that it's one life at a time. But we thank you that each one of those lives, each individual life is so important to you. That each lost sheep has value. And that your desire is to send your people to shine your light into the darkest corners of this world. And I want to thank you for Brad and Devin for their willingness to uh, lay their lives down for the sake of the Wolof people. For the sake of seeing your gospel preached, your love shared and demonstrated, your light to shine in Senegal, in Kebemer, where they live, in the villages around them. God, we praise you for what you're doing among the, among the women there. And I just ask that you would give the women courage. Give them great courage to step forward and say this is true. God, as the stories of Jesus Christ are shared... As he enters the picture that's being painted for them, open their eyes, open their hearts, break down the walls there, Lord. And let him be accepted there, let him be received. Let the gospel take root. And in this young woman who has stepped forward and said, yes, I believe, God, will you protect her? We give her the strength and courage to fulfill what she can see you've called her to by bringing her there. For each and every person who picks up the mega voice and, and listens and hears your words, hears your word being taught, hears the gospel being communicated, God, deliver that with power. Father, provide more, provide more missionaries to go, provide more mega voices to be spread, provide more opportunities for conversations, more believers. God, grow your kingdom in Senegal. And we ask that you would help us as your church and their brothers and sisters to come alongside in every way that we can. Father, provide for the Mashburns, provide for their ministry, give them the, the renewal the rest that they need 
as they're here in the U.S. for a time, just build them up, strengthen them, prepare them to go back and continue the work that you've given them there. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for what you're going to do. And we commit all this to you in the name of Jesus Christ, your son. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. All right, if you do not have a Bible with you this morning, you're going to need one once again to follow along as we study the book of First Peter. So if you don't have a Bible or a Bible app, just go ahead and put your hand up and our ushers will get you a Bible that you can use to follow along in. And if you are receiving one of those Bibles and you do not currently have a Bible of your own, please keep that Bible, take it with you and dig into it. Um, and we will jump into part of that today. Last week, we talked about the persecuted church. We talked about the persecuted church. Then at the time that Peter wrote this letter to the church, we talked about the persecuted church. Now we talked about voice of the martyrs and the work that they're doing among the persecuted church. Um, I, I read a story this morning uh, of a, a missionary family that um, a couple that made a decision, they, were, they lived in South Africa, and they made a decision as a family to move to Afghanistan to share the gospel of Jesus Christ there. And um, as they were making this decision and people were questioning it because they had two children, um, the father responded to the questions this way. He said, you only die once, it might as well be for Jesus. And he took his family to Afghanistan. And in 2014, um, the mother in that family was, was called to, to come home, no reason given. And she came from where she was ministering in a hospital back to the apartment where their family lived. And the apartment had been attacked by the Taliban. And her family was the target. And she lost her husband and a 17-year-old son and a 15-year-old daughter. And she is telling her story now around the world of, uh, of what happened, of what God called them to, of the, the power of the faith of this family, of her husband, and telling it with forgiveness in her heart that they have suffered dearly. And Peter spoke in First Peter chapter 3. He wrote about suffering, about the persecuted church, about what, would, what was happening to them and what could happen to them. And last week we looked at verses 14 and 17. So turn to First Peter chapter 3. We took verse 14 and verse 17, kind of bookends of the passage that we were looking at, and put those two together. And this is what Peter wrote. In verse 14 he said, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, church, you will be blessed Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And in verse 17, he said, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And the church back then was being persecuted for their belief that Jesus was the Son of God, and that he was their only only hope, and for the fact that they were following him, that they had put their loyalty to him, to Jesus. They were loyal to him, and him first. And they were being persecuted for that. And as Brad and Deb speak about the Wolof and and the difficult decision it is for someone who decides to follow Christ to tell their family. This young woman understands that the risk is very high, almost certain that when she tells her family, she will be thrown out of her family. She will be persecuted tremendously. 
There are Wolof who have been beaten for their faith. There are Wolof who have been hauled off as prisoners for their faith. There are Wolof that have been kicked out on their own to go and try to survive because they chose Jesus. And this is happening all around the world today. And we're rarely conscious of this. And we need to be more and more aware of the fact that this is happening around the world to our brothers and sisters. And we're praying that more will become followers of Jesus Christ. And we need to also be praying that God will provide for those followers of Jesus Christ. That he will protect them. That he will use their suffering for his glory and for the expansion of his kingdom around the world. And in, the con- in this context of a letter that he'd written to people suffering dearly for their faith, Peter has a lot more to say to them. And I want to get into that this morning. So look now at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. We're going to look at the middle of the passage that we started last week where we looked at the bookends. Now we're going to take the middle. This is verses 15 and 16. And we're going to start with the last half of verse 14 to tie it together here. And this is what Peter writes to the church. He says, have no fear of them. <clears throat> Nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. One of the most intimidating things in the life of a Christ follower seems to be the call that we have been given to be light and salt in this world. Even with a very, very mild form of persecution that we face here in this country, compared to our brothers and sisters around the world, we can be ridiculously insecure about this. We don't want to embarrass ourselves. We don't want to make anyone else feel uncomfortable. We don't want to be called out for who we truly are. We don't want to offend anyone. We don't want to put ourselves in a situation where we can't answer all the questions that we assume are going to come when we talk about spiritual things. We don't want to risk our friendships with people that may not believe what we believe. We don't want to make people feel any sort of guilt whatsoever. We don't want to do the hard work of preparing ourselves for conversations about things that really matter. We don't want to be insulted, ridiculed, ostracized. We don't want to be held accountable, held accountable for being one of those. So we say we aren't ready. We aren't outgoing enough. We aren't confident enough. We aren't spiritually mature enough. We aren't intellectual enough. We aren't holy enough. We aren't called. We don't want this. We, we aren't that. So let me remind us. You and me of something that Jesus said to Peter long before Peter wrote this letter to the persecuted church. And this is Jesus talking and he's just revealed something significant to Peter about who he is. Jesus could see who Peter was becoming. Jesus could see what Peter was about to do in denying, even knowing him. Yet this is what Jesus says. And, and I know that I need to read this statement every day of my life. This is Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Jesus is talking to Peter because Peter just said to Jesus, he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He knew who Jesus was. And so Jesus says this in response. He says, and I tell you, 
you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And here's Peter standing face to face with the Son of God, face to face with Jesus Christ. And Jesus says that that he, that Peter, would be a rock in the church that Christ was building on himself as the cornerstone. And then in this remarkable statement, Jesus highlights the fact that this church that he builds will be a mobile force that will attack the gates of hell and those gates will be overcome. This is the mindset that Peter had planted in his mind by Jesus Christ. This is the way Jesus wanted Peter to view the world. This is the way that Jesus wants us to view the world. God's church is to be an unstoppable force in this world. And so we need to listen when Jesus talks to us. We need to hear those words for ourselves. I need to know that Jesus is standing right in front of me saying, Paul, you're a rock. Paul, on this rock, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. And I need to know that he's saying it to everybody in this room. I need to know that he's saying it to my kids. My son needs to hear, Liam, you're a rock. Jude, you're a rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. And boys, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Every one of you, every one of you who has declared that Jesus is Lord, you're in this. You're a, you're a rock in this church. And this church doesn't hold this defensive position. Why do we assume that the gates of hell have feet? We sit back and go, oh, we don't want to get attacked by the gates of hell. The gates of hell are stationary. We go to them. And we go with the mindset that they cannot withstand the attack of the church. That's who we are. And here's Peter writing this with that mindset. Not the mindset that he had when he denied knowing Jesus Christ. Not this fearful, insecure mindset. Peter moved on from that. We need to move on from that. Start where Peter started when he was writing this letter. Don't start in that insecure place. We're afraid of being embarrassed. We're afraid of not having all the answers. We're afraid of being insulted. We're we're afraid. Peter had a lot of experience being Christ's ambassador. By the time he wrote this letter, he knew what they were facing. He had suffered himself. But he wrote with Jesus' words to him still fresh in his mind. He didn't write from the place of denying Christ. He wrote from the place of being a part of that force, that unstoppable force that Christ created. I'm going to work through our passage this morning in three sections. First section will be highlighted on the screen right now. And this is, this is what I want to look at. Peter writes, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. 
Peter's encouraging the church to not be afraid of those who are persecuting them. But there's something going on here in this statement that I want us to consider. Um, It would be very easy for us to tune out at this point and go, okay, he's writing to these people that are being really heavily persecuted. And we're not. We really don't have anyone to be afraid of. We're not being persecuted like that. So, you know, here's Peter writing to them. Put that in that context. He's not really speaking anything to us. But the most literal translation of the phrase, have no fear of them, is this. Do not fear their fear. Do not fear their fear. And I had to sit on this for a little while. Not being afraid of those who might persecute us is one thing. It makes sense that Peter would encourage them not to be afraid of the Roman authorities or the the religious leaders of the day. But Peter writes this instead, literally, do not be phobic of their phobia. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be afraid of what scares them. The church was being persecuted by people who were afraid of something or of someone. It wasn't those doing the persecuting that the church needed to not fear. It was the source of their anger and their fear that they needed to overcome for themselves. And people living in the Roman Empire and buying into the values of that, of that empire were afraid of man. They were afraid of man. And so Peter says to the church, do not fear man like the world around you fears man. They're coming after you because they're afraid of man. And now the second half of this statement makes a lot of sense. Verse 15. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Listen, church, every single excuse that we make and have for not letting our light shine in this world comes from our fear of man. So Peter clarifies this. He says, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Set Jesus apart as the only one that we should fear. Jesus only. That's it. And so often we live as if there was this monumental battle going on for our loyalty. We live like we have to choose to fear one force more or less than the other force. But we're not to put two forces, good and evil, God and man, up on the same level. We're not to put them on the same platform and decide between them. There's only God. And nothing else, no one else is worthy of our loyalty. It's God, period. Do not fear man. Man doesn't even deserve to be on that platform. Christ alone deserves the honor of being raised up as holy. Christ alone is worthy of our honor, our loyalty, our praise, and yes, our fear. Because fear brings us low to the point where we are raising something or someone else up. We elevate what we fear. Peter's reminding the church to elevate Christ only. Not the men, the system that the people around them were elevating. All right, on to the middle section of this. The middle of verse 15. He says, always being prepared To make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. 
And I'm amazed at how dramatically Peter's defensive strategy has changed or matured to bring him to this point. Early on in his presence in the Bible, Peter might have said, always be prepared to draw the sword and fight for what you believe in. Now he's talking about words as a defense strategy. In 1 Peter 1.13, Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Preparation and hope. Preparation and hope in both places. And two things that I wouldn't have expected to come out of Peter's mind earlier in his life. He says, Be ready. Be ready to answer for, be ready to make a reasoned statement or argument for what? For what? For your theological position? For your stand on current issues? For your choice of political candidates? For your favored denomination? For your cultural source of all things true? No, he says, be prepared to answer for your hope. For your hope. Give an account for the hope that you have. Be ready to explain to someone who asks you why you have a confident expectation when it comes to your salvation, when it comes to your faith. Let me ask you this. Has your salvation brought you hope? Are you eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus to redeem all things? Are you eagerly awaiting the restoring and perfecting of your body and your soul? Are you hopeful that the work that is happening in you to restore you to the person God created you to be will be, as promised, finished someday? Are you looking forward to the day when death will be no more? Are you confidently anticipating the shedding of this mortal body for an eternal radiant one? Are you eagerly anticipating the day when God's order here on earth will be restored? Two questions for you to go along with those. Question number one, are you actually hopeful? Are you actually hopeful? Do you believe with confident expectation that these things are going to happen? Do you view life differently than the world around you because you do believe these things are going to happen? Do you have hope, church? And question number two. Are you ready to answer for that hope? When someone asks you to explain why you're so different in the way you view life, are you ready to answer them? Peter's encouraging the church to be ready to make a defense of their hope. The Mashburn's visit has me thinking about Senegal again, obviously. This is a significant point when working with Muslims. Because they believe that God is completely unpredictable. They believe that when they die and stand before God, their fate is determined by the mood that God's in at that particular moment. They have no confident expectation whatsoever if they arrive before God when they die and he's in a bad mood, they're going to hell. Regardless, if they arrive before God and he happens to be in a good mood, they're in. But for us, we know who God is and what he's like. We know what's going to happen when we stand before him. We have hope in his grace and in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
Brothers and sisters, let's be faithful in working on our ability to give an account for that hope. This isn't about crafting some theologically perfect statement that we can pull up on our phone and read to people that we encounter. This is about living in a state of confident, eager hope and developing the ability to express that hope. And my account is going to look different than yours. Your account's going to look different from your spouses, your friends, your parents. But we all have hope as followers of Jesus Christ. We all have a story. Let's get good at telling those stories well, at giving an account for our hope. All right, finally, let's look briefly at the third part of this passage. Peter writes, Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And we're going to spend some time in the future here on the idea of answering for our hope with gentleness and respect. There are some practical things that we can look at here. We will revisit the clear conscience aspect of this as well. Um, I have a feeling that far too few of us live with a clear conscience. Yet if you go into the scriptures, if you go into the Bible, you're going to see the conscience addressed over and over and over again. Paul talks about our conscience in his writings a lot. And we've got to grasp that. I want to grasp that. I want to understand that better and really grab hold of that. So we'll come back to this. Today I want to look at just one aspect of this statement that stands out to me. And it sets us up well to participate in communion here this morning. There are some contrasting realities before us here in this letter. And they're beautiful in the way that they contrast. Back in verse 12 of this chapter, Peter quotes Psalm 34. It's in verses 10 through 12. In verse 12, it says, But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Then in verse 16 that we've been looking at, Peter writes that those who revile our good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. It does not say that we should turn our faces against those who mistreat us. It does not say that we should put to shame those who revile us. It does say, in the quote from Psalm 34, that we should seek peace and pursue it. That we should do good. It does say, in verse 15, that we should defend our hope with gentleness and respect, even to those who are against us. Now, can you imagine how hard this would have been for the church to carry out when their lives were on the line? They had people out to kill them, yet Peter's writing to them about communicating with those people who want to kill them with gentleness and respect. Our prayer as a church and as individuals has to be that this instructional will be applied to our own lives and our own witness, that we take this to heart. So I want you to see something. You see how justice is never ignored in the Bible. God never just glosses over justice. It's addressed. But God will deal with the justice part. He will turn his face against them. He will put them to shame. He will handle the justice. In the meantime, he's asking us to overcome that desire in our sinful nature to carry out the justice ourselves. Instead, God is asking his children to seek peace. 
God is asking his children to give witness to the hope that he's given us. God is asking his children as ambassadors of his kingdom to take the high road and not just take it begrudgingly. He's asking us people who are made in his image to choose the kingdom way of dealing with persecution and conflict and injustice. On that road, the way of God's kingdom, we'll find joy, he says, in answering for the hope that is in us to people who are searching for that very same hope. So we prepare to share communion. I want us to consider Jesus' road. Our passage today makes it clear that God is concerned about justice being served for all the persecution that was taking place in the world when Peter wrote this letter. God has that same concern for all the injustice that is taking place in the world right now. God is concerned for all of the injustice that's happening to our brothers and sisters around the planet. And one day soon, he will judge it all. But can you believe what he's doing in the meantime? Into a world full of injustice, a world that had become increasingly antagonistic towards him, he sends his only son. And in an act of extreme mercy and grace, Jesus, God's son, gives his life for the purpose of redeeming all the wrong that was being done and all the wrong that had been done and all the wrong that was going to be done. And he invites the lost sheep of his world to come back to him by way of the gift of his son sent to pay the price for all the injustice that we've committed throughout history. On that cross... Jesus, our loving Savior, willingly gives it all up for us. His body, represented by the bread here today, executed in our place. His blood, represented by the cup here today, shed so that we could be washed clean of the stains that we have accumulated through our sin. This is God's response to injustice. This is how he does it. This is the model that we've been given to follow in this world. This is how we're to respond to injustice. Peter says, don't fear what the world fears. Put Jesus in his place as your king. Be ready to bring the message of God's response to injustice to the world around you. Do it with gentleness and respect. Those people carrying out the injustice, they were made in God's image too. And he longs to redeem them. Let him handle the justice his way. In the meantime, he says, remember. Remember how your father handled injustice. Remember his son. Remember Jesus' body. Remember Jesus' blood. Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.
And I ask the elders if they'll come now and prepare to serve. Will you pray with me? Father, I just continue to be amazed that you being all-powerful looked at the injustice happening in this world. You looked at the sin. You looked at the disobedience. You looked at the hate and the anger and the violence. And your response, when the time was right, was to deal with the injustice by sending your son to pay for it. How illogical that is. But what great evidence of the fact that you are love. And so we come this morning to the table recognizing fully that we have carried out injustice in this world ourselves. We don't deserve what you're offering at the table here. But there it is. Symbols of the body and blood of your son. Symbols of your grace and mercy. Symbols of your forgiveness. Symbols of your love. Oh, Father, thank you for for loving us so much. Will you please teach us, Father, how to love the world like you love us? Teach us how to deal with injustice. Teach us how to respond when people ask about the light that's in us. Teach us how to clearly, effectively, lovingly, gently, and respectfully communicate hope into this hopeless world. Father, as we come now, bring your son to mind. Don't let us come with anything on our minds except Jesus Christ. We remember. We remember what he went through. We remember what you must have gone through as his father. Because you love us that much. Thank you for that love. We come now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.